Welcome to the University of Adversity, where the only rules of the class is to hold your head up high and keep moving forward. Because when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And now, here's your host, Lance Ecos. What's up, everybody? How are we doing today? Thanks for joining us today, University of Adversity. This is your first time. Welcome. You're coming back. You're a regular listener. Thank you. I appreciate you. Today's guest is a coach. He coaches men to perform at their peak from the boardroom to the bedroom. He hosts a podcast called The Evolved Caveman. He's graduated from the University of California, Berkeley, with a PhD in educational psychology. He was an expert consultant for Pixar's Inside Out and has spoken to many organizations such as Stanford Medical School, UC Berkeley, Kaiser Permanent, Sutter Health, Gap, and UPS. He has been featured in national media such as U.S. News, World Report, Reader's Digest, and Self Magazine. He has also worked with Army Rangers, Navy SEALs, entrepreneurs, and executives from dozens of Fortune 500 companies. We had a really good conversation today. Today, I have Dr. John Schinnerer joining us. We we got into his story, and he he mentioned that he hadn't really told it in that much detail all at once. So we really got into it and he's a great storyteller. Like he took us back, explained everything. And what it was really clear to me is that he was somebody that's gone through a lot of adversity, a lot of challenges. And now he's able to teach these things in his own life, which is important when people are helping others. It's like, how have you gone through this? If you've gone through this, then I'm going to believe you. And he has, so he's very credible and he's very great education as well. He's he obviously is um, highly educated and ed- educated in, in, in university and in life. So we had a great conversation. I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this. And he's also got an awesome podcast called The, Evolve, the Evolved Caveman, which is really cool. Like talking about the different levels of men and how we, we evolve and evolve as a species and You know, sometimes we get limited to certain things, different boxes, and it's important to be able to expand on those things and develop as men men and as human beings. So hope you guys enjoy this. As always, subscribe, leave a review. I appreciate all you guys. Share this with a friend, University of Adversity, and we will catch you guys at the end. So hope you enjoy this. Dr. John Schinnerer coming right up. Dr. John, welcome to the show, man. Hey, Lance, thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. As always, I, um, I wanted to make sure to get that thing started to record because we're getting into some good stuff there and I didn't want to miss too much. So, um, yeah, thanks for coming on, man. You're doing some cool stuff. Um, I can already tell we're going to have a great conversation and you have an awesome podcast. You do some awesome work with you know, relationship coaching and helping men. And I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to dive into all that. But before that, before we kind of dive into the nuts and bolts of what you do now. We, I'd love for the, anyone that doesn't know you or aren't familiar with you, if you could maybe give us a bit of backstory, take us back a little bit on a journey, maybe tell us how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, so usually when I start that story, I go back to about high school. Um, so my parents were hard-driving, overachieving individuals. You know, my dad was a dentist. He created kind of a dental empire. He was heavily involved in the California Dental Association, the American Dental Association. And my mom was the first mayor of the city that we were, that we, that I grew up in. So, you know, for me as a kid, I was always like, how do I keep up? How do I compete with their memory? Like, how do I get their attention and their love? So I guess the, the subconscious answer that I came up with to that was achieve. And so by the time I was a senior in high school, I was, I think from the outside, I'm sure it looked like I was killing it. Like I was student body president in my high school. I was captain of three varsity teams. I was taking advanced courses and getting good grades. Um, and so I, I think it looked good from the outside. Um, I got a lot of praise for that. And I think that it could kind of keep my, my depression at bay because I could tell myself internally, like, well, I'm doing all this, so I can't actually be that sad. And you know, part of my makeup is a little bit of depression. There's a little bit of anxiety. Um, but you know, my internal experience during that year was I was depressed some of the time. I was stressed a lot of the time. I was anxious a lot of the time. I was tired and sick a lot of the time. And I was just kind of miserable. And so at the age of 17, I started questioning this idea of success. What is success? Because 
it seemed to me that there should be room and success for things like happiness, contentment, relaxation, joy. And I wasn't really getting that. What I was getting was a lot of negative emotions, but I had a lot of pride because I was doing a lot of amazing things. Um, so it, you know, it worked, it, it got me into a great college at, at a pretty high cost, but it, it started me thinking about it at the age of 17. So um, fast forward, you know, I, I married my high school sweetheart um, and, and I thought, you know, my self-worth wasn't real high at that point in time. My self-esteem was pretty low. Mm. Um, and part of the way I dealt with that was to achieve. So I thought I was doing really well by marrying one of the cutest girls in high school. What I didn't realize was that my game was actually far bigger than high school. <laughs> um, go figure. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that worked well for a while. You know, that marriage was, was pretty good for a while until things started getting more difficult. You know, money got tight. We had a, we have four kids together. One of them um, was a behavior problem. He's oppositional defiant. And I remember I was, so I got into a PhD program at Cal in psychology and I was working as a school psychologist and I was interviewing for jobs to get a full-time job. So I didn't have my PhD yet, but I was uh, probably 26. And I remember coming home with great news. Like I had just gotten hired by the school district full-time as a school psychologist for the first time ever. So I was psyched. So, you know, I got, you know, full-time benefits. I got pension. I got summers off. I could get out of work at maybe 3.30. And so I come home and I tell my wife, and I, we didn't have kids at the time. Uh, maybe we had one. And I go, hey, you know, I just got hired. And she's like, great. How much are you making? And I was like, well, it's about 75000 And I remember she got furious. And she started, she, that's not enough money for a PhD. Like, you need to find something else to do. Wow. And, and it was interesting because my primary motivation has never been to make money. It's always been to serve people. And yeah. I was quite clear with her about this. But I think because I was voted most likely to succeed in high school, she thought dollar signs. Uh. And I, I mean, I remember like I had to back out of the house because she literally threw a shoe at me and was swearing at me. And I'm like, I, I mean, if I had had more wisdom at that point in my life, I would have just gotten out of there. I would have like ended the relationship. But in my mind, because my self-esteem was kind of low, I thought, huh, I guess I must not be doing enough to make my wife happy. I need to do something different. And so that was a really eye-opening experience, but it wasn't enough for me to leave the relationship. Um, so then I, I left school psychology and became an entrepreneur and actually started my own company doing pre-employment testing for large companies. So we would match employees via comprehensive testing on the web and it worked really well like we started out with ups and showed them that they could reduce turnover by 33 percent that's huge and for a company like ups with tight margins this was a big deal so it started out really well and it went well for about six years and then the economy tanked in the mid-2000s and when the economy tanked turnover just went like no one was leaving their job because everyone was so scared yeah so then companies were like, yeah, we don't really need a pre-employment test. So my company went up in flames. Wow. And I remember, you know, that was kind of, that was one of my first real challenges with adversity because, you know, I tell you, we men put a lot of our identity in what we do for a living and being the provider. Yeah. So when that tanks, most men and myself included will get really depressed and we just, we don't know what to do. And I remember just feeling like a complete failure at that point, partly because I had friends and family money in the company and I had to go yeah. to them and say, you know, I'm sorry that that money's gone. It's you get zero, zero back. Um, and so that was, that was really tough. And, you know, I think I was depressed for, for months and then I had to pick myself up and reinvent myself. So I started getting into positive psychology at that point. And this was about 2006, 2005. And positive psychology is the scientific study of happiness, basically. So I started reading hundreds of studies, and then I started to write a framework to coach people towards a successful and happy life. And I remember I had, um, I, I went to a Christian businessman's networking breakfast in San Francisco, which is kind of a weird place for me because I consider myself spiritual. I'm not crazy about organized religion, just mm -hmm. because I think humans get in the way. We, we kind of yeah. screw things up. So that's my own bias. But 
anyway, I sat next to a guy who owned a radio station and he was just asking me what I do. And I was telling him and he was like, yeah, we should meet. And so we met a few times and he said, John, I want to put you on the radio. And I was like, huh. And the idea scared the crap out of me. Partly, I mean, I have a little anxiety to me. So to think that I might be doing a live primetime daily radio show and this, this radio signal reached 10 million people. Now, I don't know how many were actually listening, could have been 10, but in my mind, it was 10 million. Wow. And so it, it really took some effort for me to, to get comfortable on the air, to learn how to tell a story, to learn how to tell a joke, to learn how to emote. Um, because what I started doing was, when I started out the radio show, I would rely heavily on studies and data to kind of convince people to try these tools to become happier. And I realized like reason and logic and statistics don't motivate anyone to do anything. <laughs> we might intellectually go, wow, that's a really good idea, but it's not about that. I mean, if you yeah. really want to motivate someone to change their life, you have to dig into emotion. You have yeah. to become a storyteller. You have to work on empathy and compassion and resonance. Because that's, I, I would argue, the best way to motivate people to change. And so I, yeah. I started practicing and I started getting better and I started relaxing and started learning how to tell a joke in a vacuum, which is weird. You know, you tell a joke on air and no one, there's no sound. And so you have to just assume it's funny and kind of laugh afterwards yourself, which yeah. is unusual. Um, and then I got to interview some world-class experts. Um, I got to continue my learning, which was amazing. And then I stopped that after a year to publish the book and open up private practice. So let me just think, um, it was about that time, so that would be about, so I opened up private practice. It was lukewarm for a while because I was focusing on positive psychology and people generally don't come in to become happier. They generally come in because of points of pain. Yeah. And so I had to shift and a psychiatrist friend of mine suggested that I focus on anger management. And I was like, sure, I can do that. And I combined anger management and positive psychology. So what I did was I did that in my practice, but I also got kind of annoyed with my business model, which sucks because I have to work an hour to get paid an hour. That's not a good way to build wealth. And so I took a course uh, many, many years ago on how to kind of create online content, how to create online courses. And so one of the things they said was find a niche. So I was like, okay, so how about I'll do anger management for men? Like there's gotta be millions of men out there that need these tools that could learn them in the privacy of their own home. Maybe don't have the money to pay me or aren't nearby or don't have the courage to come in and see someone, which I think is largely true for many of us. Um, and so I created this online anger management course. It was like 15 hours of material. I put it up online and a couple of funny things happened. One was I started getting emails from angry women all around the world. Kind of, hey buddy, we're pissed off too. What about us? <laughs> so like, yeah. It's not yeah. about you. Like they just a lot. Um, but so I, I made it gender neutral. So I made it for both genders. But that was kind of funny because at that time, my assumption was there was more angry men than women and men were angrier than women. And I don't think that's true now. I think it's pretty evenly mixed. Yeah. Um, and we can go into that a little bit more later. But um, so the other thing that happened is I got an email from a guy who said, you know, been in prison for 27 years, been addicted to meth and PCP for as long, um, no longer wish to be the man I once was, turned my life around six years ago. Um, thank you so much for the free anger management classes because normally I would give a couple away for free and then, and then upsell. Um, I don't know who this guy is. So I just write him back. Hey, good job. Turn your life around. Keep up the good work. Fire off an email. I see a client. I come back. There's a response from him within an hour. I'm like, who has email access in prison? And he goes, dear John, this isn't my real name. My handlers won't let me use my real name. Check out the books, The Black Hand and Urban Street Terrorism. That's me. Once you do a little research, I'm sure you'll understand why I can't use my real name. And I was like, wow, this guy's really wow. good. Because now I'm curious. Wow. And now I have to check out a book. Yeah. And so I checked out the book, The Black Hand, and it's about this guy, Rene Boxer Enriquez, um, who turned out to be one of the leaders of the Mexican mafia. Uh, Mexican mafia is a, a prison gang. Well, it started out as a prison gang in LA. 
uh, about 100 to 150 made men. They control or influence about 150,000 gang members, uh, including MS-13. And this guy had killed 12 people and had been in prison most of his adult life and needed help with anger management to get out. Um, so I got to work with him for a minute. So that was pretty exciting. Wow. Um, so the other thing that happened as a result of that is I'm, I'm, I've always been a geek in the best sense of the word. Like I've been programming computers, you know, since I was 12 and well, gaming and, and other stuff. But um, so I could do SEO pretty well. So I could get these pages up really high on Google in the organic search rankings. And as a result of that, Pixar found me shortly after that. And I remember I got this call and they said, um, hey, can you talk to, an, uh, to a producer here at Pixar? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'm thinking maybe they're depressed or anxious or stressed. He gets on the phone. He goes, hey, this is Jonas Rivera. You know, I'm, I'm a producer here at Pixar. I produced this movie called Up. Maybe you've heard of it. Like, so I'm an animation geek, right? Yeah, I, yeah. Geek, so I love Pixar. So I was like, yeah, yeah. I think I actually own that movie. You know, I knew I owned it, but yeah. trying to play cool. Um, and he was like, oh, good. He's like, me and Pete Doctor, Pete directed up. We're working on a new movie. And we're wondering if you'd kick, come down and kick some ideas around with us. Kind of brainstorm. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I could fit that in my calendar. And so I got to go down with them, go down to Emeryville and consult with them for a day on Inside Out, specifically around anger, the character anger. Wow. Um, so that was, that was thrilling. I mean, it was really exciting. Those guys are sharp as hell. Yeah. Um, and just to have a tiny part in that movie was um, beyond anything I ever expected. <laughs> so, so then, you know, my practice started to take off with anger management. Um, which was interesting because I really needed help with anger management towards the end of my marriage because I was getting increasingly angry. Um, and there's reasons for that. I mean, you know, as I said, our son was oppositional defiant and my wife and I, ex-wife now, we couldn't agree on how to parent him. But some things I felt were so self-evident and it just wasn't getting back up from her. You know, I remember there was, and this was one of the, one of the straws that broke the camel's back for me. He'd been acting out since the age of seven. Now, you know, this was when he was eight. Um, but I remember he was stealing money from everyone in the house. And with four kids, it's hard to nail someone down exactly and catch them red handed. So there was one day when I caught him stealing 40 bucks out of my wallet and I caught him red handed. And I said, look, you know, I need you to go to your room. I'll talk to your mom when she gets home and we'll figure out consequences. So what he would normally do is he would immediately grab the phone and call his mom at work and lie to her. And he, he admitted this later on, it's several years later. And his mom would believe him. Oh. And I'm like, so wait, let me get this right. Like you're believing an eight-year-old who has a history of deceit over your husband who has a PhD in psychology. Like, really? Wow. Like, Something's I'm struggling right. with that. Yeah. And so she told him to leave his room and like go to his friend's house. So by the time I get downstairs, he's running out the door with his shirt in hand. And I'm like, wait, you just reinforced his behavior of stealing. Like you're in, you're, if you're not like doing nothing about it, you're rewarding his behavior because you're telling him he can get away with it. Like, this is really serious. This is, this is the worst parenting I've seen. And so there was a lot of that going on. You know, like I would challenge him on homework. She would yell at me. And I'm like, what? Wow. And so I made a decision and we, we decided together, like, this isn't working. Like we need to get divorced. We, we didn't have a lot of money at that point. This was like, I think we separated in 2010. And so it's just like, okay, let's do mediation. We'll just split up the assets and we'll go our separate ways. Yeah. So I was again, really depressed when we separated. I was, you know, I felt like a failure as a man, as a husband and as a father. And I remember I lived with my parents for about a year, I'm very grateful to them, and just gave her all the money I earned for almost a year, 11 months. Just, I thought, because it would be nice. It was the right thing to do. And then I said, hey, look, I need to, I need to stop doing this because I need to save up for my own place and now's the time. And so I stopped making those payments. As soon as I did that, she got the most aggressive attorney in the area and not only litigated against me, she litigated, against, she litigated against my parents in an attempt to get at their money. Oh, my God. And I was like, 
wow, you know, I've helped a lot of people through divorce. I've never heard of that. Like that's a whole new level of low. Wow. And then we went into court and she lied about almost everything under the sun, every important piece of financial data. I mean, she said, you know, she underreported her income by a hundred thousand. She overreported her business expenses by 50,000. Um, a judge caught her lying on the stand twice. And at the end of three and a half years of litigation and $300,000 in attorney's fees, the judge said, you're going to pay a third of John's attorney's fees. Like that's how bad her behavior was. And my attorney was stunned because, so she had to pay 50,000 of my attorney's fees. And in 20 years of practice, the most my attorney had ever seen was 10,000. Wow. So the award was five times what he had ever seen. Just to give you kind of yeah. the scope and breadth. So that three-year period was hell. Because there was points where I was paying support based on her lies. Oh, frustrating from even for me sitting here, man. Oh, it was. And so, you know, to me, I'm using every tool that I can to stay calm in court, to stay yeah. calm outside of court, to remind myself that trust the process, like it'll come back to you, like it's gonna turn out okay, it's gonna be fair, it's just not fair right now. And it was, it was the best possible exercise in emotional management. Yeah, like it must have been such a test for you because uh, here you are teaching this stuff to people and then you come home and, and this woman is like that. Yeah. Completely messing with everything that you're doing, like your parenting, your... <laughs> it's so like, I mean, yeah. It continues. So like there yeah. was a point at which she took our son and sent him out of state to live with her parents and then refused to tell me where he was. So for three months, I couldn't get her to say where our son was, which, you know, fits the definition in my mind of parental abduction. Yeah. I mean, I finally had to file a police report and say, hey, you know, you need to tell me where our son is. Like, who does that? Um, and, and so that was, it was challenging. Um, it's been, it's been eye-opening in the sense that a lot of the suspicions I had about her behavior and psychological makeup when I was in the marriage, she completely confirmed when we were getting divorced. Um, and so it's, it was great vindication and validation that, yeah, I, I was right to get out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was some of the biggest challenges that I faced um, because that's not just like you lose a company, it's a one-time event and you can recover from it. That's ongoing. And, and a lot of the stuff that my clients deal with, the situations are ongoing. You know, how do you practice forgiveness with someone that continues to do stuff like that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a really important question. Um, and then I guess the last piece of um, adversity that I had, so about, let's see, it's 2019, maybe four years ago, my, the same son was living with me um, 100% of the time. And I remember he came home wasted, he was like 15. And it was my younger daughter's birthday, the night of her birthday. So I just, you know, said, hey, look, we'll talk in the morning, go to sleep. In the morning, I went to his room and said, hey, give me your phone, like you came home wasted last night. You can't do that. And he got all pissed and like threw the phone against the wall and whatever, and then threatened, you know, to run away. And I was like, there's the door. Like, if you want to run away, pack your stuff. There's the door. And he got the phone back at some point because I set it down, which was dumb. But I, I went to get it back from him and he stuck a thumb in my eye. And immediately I lost half the vision, the lower half of my field of vision in, in my right eye. And this was New Year's Eve day. So I, I just, I pushed him out the door. I said, you need to leave and I'll talk to you later and closed and locked the door. And I called the optometrist and spoke to the, the secretary there. And she said, oh no, it'll be fine. Like, just wait till after the holiday. And I was like, okay, that was stupid. I should have gone right to the ER. But so I waited two days, then got into another optometrist and they were like, so, what are you doing this afternoon? I was like, I don't know. They're like we do. You're going to a retinal specialist. Okay. Went to the retinal specialist. He goes, what are you doing tomorrow morning? I was like, I don't know. He goes, I do. You're going to have an emergency surgery. 
by that time I had lost 90% of the vision in my eye. Like I could see a little thin strip up here, like in a crescent shape. And so my retina had a, like a 90% tear. Wow. So I had, so, and those retinal surgeries are brutal because they put a bubble in your eye of helium, which is supposed to hold the retina up so that it heals back onto the back of your eye. So after the surgery, you have to spend a week laying face down, looking at the floor. And your whole eye fills with blood. It's, it's pretty wild. It's great for Halloween. Um, but the, the surgery was modestly helpful. Like I, I saved the eye and my eye still works, but the vision was pretty terrible. Um, like I couldn't see the big E on the eye chart. I could see that there was a white square on the wall. And so I had another retinal surgery maybe a year later. Then I had a corneal surgery to replace the cornea. Um, and now my right eye, it, it works. The, the pupil doesn't dilate well because they zap that nerve. Um, but it's, it's, I'm functionally blind in my right eye. Wow. And so that took some practice too, just to practice forgiveness, you know, for my son that he permanently disabled me. Um, but you know, you talk about adversity and, you know, one of the things I've learned is that, you know, life is painful at times. Like the only guarantee you have in life is that you're going to suffer at times. And, you know, I like the Buddhist notion of the two darts. So we're going to get hit with the two darts. The first darts pain, pain is inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're going to suffer at times. It's just the nature of the game. Yeah. Second dart is suffering. You have some control as to how long you spend in suffering. Yeah. And so I would just, you know, practice forgiveness, practice, practice compassion, practice self-compassion, um, practice all the tools that I teach my clients. Um, one of the things I always tell my clients is, you know, the reason I teach these tools is because I know they work. The reason I know they work is because I need them. I've used them. Yeah. And I still use them and I use them daily. I'm even grateful for the work that I do because it affords me the opportunity to remind myself when I'm reminding them, oh yeah, I should get back to that tool. Yeah, that's right. That's a good tool. Otherwise I forget. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the adversity piece. And while all that was going on, you know, I had a radio show, did a book, wrote a book, um, did a grand rounds presentation for Kaiser on positive psychology. Uh, I was in a, a documentary with Albert Bandura called Skewed. Um, what else? Oh, worked with Pixar, did the online anger management class, created a couple other classes. Um, and, you know, the anger management class, I'm really, really proud of because at this point, over 10,000 people have been through that class. And to me, that's the best way I can leave this world a better place than when I came in. Wow. Yeah. It's, there's a, man, there's, there's a lot there. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah. I am yes. um, fascinating hearing that because you must, you must have been tested so many times because here you are teaching these methods, how to get through these things with people. And then here you're going home and you're dealing with all this kind of shit. Yeah. You know, and I know, I know exactly where you're coming from as far as, cause my dad went through this with my stepmom, this exact thing. Like I felt like I was reliving it again. And I was like that bitch. I was thinking in my head, <laughs> like, like, and I was like, man, I know exactly what you're going through. Like yeah. I knew exactly because she, she would lie and she would skew the whole legal system so that everybody felt sorry for her because she had four kids. But really she was so, so messed up. They believed her and it was just so untrue. Everything was untrue. And it was like, how is this even, how is this even happening? Like it was, it was a joke after a while. Yeah. And, and that's one of the dynamics is, you know, with a lot of people with this kind of psychological profile, they will, act as the aggressor or the bully. And then as soon as it's turned around in the slightest, yeah. they become the victim. Yes, that's exactly it. Um, and it's like, so you, I mean, you have to learn, like, I remember I, I read a book when I was going through the divorce, which was so spot on. It was like just a blueprint for what was going to happen. It's called splitting and then subtitles something like divorcing, uh, divorcing someone with narcissistic personality or borderline personality. And it just, I knew what was coming and I didn't follow it to the letter, but 
it was so helpful for things to be predictable in their unpredictableness. Yeah. I felt like I had a much greater sense of control. She, yeah. And, and, and the kind of parenting her, your ex-wife doing that is so, so bad at, at teaching or sending the wrong message. Like here you're trying to, you know, form this young mind and then she's, just doing so many things wrong that are just going against you. You're, he's, he's losing respect for you. He's not learning how to do things the right way. It's like, there's so many things happening there. And, ah, man, I, and, and to be able to, at least you have those tools that you're working with though, right? Some people don't have them. And the yeah. good thing, of, and, and I guess the positive to look back after hearing that is that you have, you can literally, you know, cause some people will preach and teach things that they've never gone through anything themselves. So at least with you, when you tell that, you're like, look, I've done all this. I've yeah. been through this stuff, you know? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, for a while during that, that litigation and, and after I was really angry. Of and, course. You know, I, one of the, um, I think a great piece of advice in terms of telling your story or parts of your story is don't tell your story from a place of wound. Tell it from a place where you've healed you know, at least where there's a scab so that you have a little bit of distance from it. And it's, that's taken a lot of work. And, you know, I don't want to, I try to be careful in terms of bashing my ex-wife. And at the same time, this is my story. Yeah. And to tell things that were objectively factual, that's just, those are the facts. I, like, I didn't think of it. Interpretation out of it. I don't see it as bashing at all. I'm the same way as you. It's like you, you, you want to be able to, you don't want to say things that you feel are being like a victim, but like you're just speaking the truth. That's what happened. And there's a, that fine line where I know what you mean. You don't, cause it, there's no point. There's some people that'll just bash and it doesn't do any good, but there's also your story that actually happened. And it's like, well, people need to, people need to know about that. Right. Like that, that itself and, and what you've been able to go through and, now be able to help people that are going through that same sort of thing and empower people with the tools is, is super important. Well, it was interesting. I mean, I remember when I was in the thick of it, like when I was living with my parents and I was depressed, like it was brutal. Even, well, especially during that time, it was interesting because I would go to work and see clients all day and then I would go home. But being home was more painful than being at work. Being at work gave me a sort of respite because no matter what was going on with my clients, I feel my work is very meaningful. And so to be able to have that meaning at work was huge. Even yeah. though my, wife, my life at that time was in shambles, I still had meaningful work, which gave me purpose. And that was oftentimes enough to carry me through. Yeah. I, I want to circle back to the fact is when you were ta first talking about getting married to your high school sweetheart, I was thinking, wow, that's, that's amazing. And then I was thinking eventually when you went through it, it's not so amazing because it's such a rare thing because we evolve so much from that age. Like we're just kids, man, like at 18, 17. I don't see how that's even, how that's even an option. It is, Hey, if you can stay together like for 50, 60 years, amazing. But I, that is such a rare thing because we change so much. If I married somebody that I, I met when I was 17, like I'd feel sorry for them. Yeah. You know, one of the things I caution my clients about now who are younger, like in their twenties is, yeah, look, there's no rush. Like, you know, please date around, like be in different relationships. It's one of the best ways you can learn about yourself, the other gender relationship. You, you need some yardstick for comparison. Yeah. And so just to be able to give yourself time to slow down. And the other thing I'll talk about them with a lot of them is selection, selection, selection. And, you know, and, and I have clients that I care about and I'm like, look, dude, if you're dating, bring your girl in here or tell me stories about her so that we can figure out, you know, what her psychological makeup is, because I don't want you getting hooked up with any sort of personality disorder or anyone without integrity. Like there's certain deal killers to me now that, you know, everyone, people in their 20s are often looking for someone that's beautiful and fit. To me, beautiful and fit's easy. Yeah. Like, you can find that. That's not that hard. But to find someone that's beautiful and fit, someone you're attracted to that has, you know, emotional awareness, com emotional awareness, communication skills, integrity, like, that's much more difficult. 
yeah. you know, someone that's balanced. Yeah. Because all that other stuff goes away. Right. You no, know? like looks and, and, and getting all caught up on that. Of course, it's nice to be attracted to somebody and that's usually the first thing, but that's not the be all end all. There's gotta be so much thousands of people. They yeah. Hard, I would argue. And it's almost funny because there's been people that I haven't been attracted to. And then all of a sudden you get to know them. You're like, Oh wow. They're a lot. Uh-huh. I see them at a, at a different way. And then it's the opposite for some you go, Oh wow. She's a babe or whoever, whoever you're into. And then you get yeah. to know them. You're like, Oh man, that's not yeah. what I thought. <laughs> it was when I was doing an interview in San Francisco, I don't know, several months ago. And there was a, a female intern there who was probably 21, just graduated from Harvard. And she was listening to the interview. And after the interview, she said, um, hey, you know, can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. She said, I just broke up with my boyfriend like, I don't know, three months ago. And I'm, I'm kind of starting to date again. What's the one thing you would suggest I look for in a potential relationship? And I said, if I had to narrow it down to any one thing, I would look for someone who has a growth mindset someone who is willing and able to grow with you over time. Because if you can grow together over time, there's not a whole lot you can't overcome. I think a lot of the problems arise when you get one person that's like, no, love me as I am. I don't want to grow because it's yeah. know, whatever too scary or you know, whatever it is. And then one person that's growing because the one person's going to grow away from the other person. Yeah. Yeah. I've personally experienced that. It's, um, it's, yeah, you have to be willing because if you're not both willing to grow, then you're essentially dying, right? Like, yeah. I mean, what, so, okay, what's, what's a good, what's a, what's a red flag that you, you would say that, I mean, obviously going, Hey, you're not, you're only making 75 grand. Like that's, man, that, that made me, that, that honestly made me like, what a bitch. <laughs> I was thinking in my head, you know, like, that kind of thing, man, that's always driven me crazy is, is somebody that is motivated by just that. It's like, Money, yeah. you know, other than, other than saying that, like, is there any other little like red flags that you've noticed as like, Ooh, ding, ding. Don't- yeah. I think, you know, so f- to spot borderlines, borderlines are a little bit easier because they're very emotionally volatile. And I, I think it's easy for, forgive the stereotypes, but for men to get into a relationship with women, borderlines aren't always female, but and they're very volatile and they think, wow, this, this one's really passionate, which I guess is true. Um, but the problem is that they don't have much of a sense of self. And so they want to glom onto you and get their sense of self based on what you're doing. Um, and they will often, when things get bad, they get really, really fearful of abandonment. So I've heard of borderlines, like some, like a couple will get in an argument and the borderline will like jump in front of the other one to prevent them from leaving the house. Or say, you know, if you leave, I'm going to tell someone you hit me. Or actually hit themselves in the face and fall down. Like, that's pretty extreme. But the other tell for them is they threaten suicide a lot. If you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. So that's a little bit more extreme. But the one that's more subtle that I don't think most people are aware of for someone like a narcissist is it's one of the big tells for me is a lack of empathy and a lack of emotional depth. And, you know, the, the way that I pick that up is by, if I'm having a conversation with someone and they could say the right emotional words, oh, that's exciting. Oh, that's, wow, that's really neat. Oh, you know, I'm really angry right now, but you don't pick up any emotion internally. You know, empathy is kind of that felt sense. We, We know from heart math, for instance, that the electromagnetic, the electromagnetic energy emanated from our heart extends about six feet out past our body. So whenever you're in a person-to-person conversation, you've got some sort of energy field that's commingling. Mm. And I think this can partly explain empathy. But when you get into a conversation with someone that's there's deep connection, well, not deep connection, there's deep emotion being expressed, and you don't get any emotion off of them, like they just feel kind of plastic, that's a big red flag for me. The other thing is, you know, kind of distortions, Um, which is kind of deception, but distortions are where, um, let's say, you know, she said, I don't know, she said something yesterday about, oh yeah, I said I'd pick up the kids or I'll pick up the kids today. And then the next day she's like, I never said that. Oh, 
So it's denial of reality. It's, I never said that, that never happened. Um, that's a distortion. Yeah. And, and you see this a lot in the political field today. Um, so those are a couple of the things that I look for. Yeah. What but about... it's, it's, and I think it's hard for men because we're not taught, we're not encouraged to be emotionally aware. So if we're in here and not in here, it's hard to pick that, those subtleties up unless you really practice, which is possible. Yeah, that's where I wanted to go next was the men side of things. So, you know, we were, t- we were, we were programmed to be these um, bread earners, right? To be the go get the career, take care of the family. And if we don't, then we're, you know, that's how a lot of people go into depression, right? Just mm-hmm. like you were saying, walk, talk us through now, you know, about how important it is for, for men and, and some of the work that you do specifically, do you work on them being more vulnerable? Do you work on them being like, what are some of the things opening up about themselves? Like what are some of the things you do to help them become better at, at being men? Nowadays. Okay, well, that's a huge question. So let it's me loaded, loaded. Let me let me back up a little bit. So, um, you know, one of the ways that I'll start with men is by talking about the man box culture. Okay, what's that? It's the way that we're socialized from a very very young age. I mean, there's research that shows that we start to shut down the use of emotional language by the age of four. So by kindergarten, we're starting to stop using certain emotional words, and why? Well, it's because like think of kindergarten, there's usually an alpha male in a group, right? A group of five-year-olds. And usually I would say, because I've thought about how does this get started? I would say usually one kid has like a hyper-masculine dad who's, you know, very old school and teaches him this. And then, you know, shit rolls downhill. So then he brings it to the other kids. So if, you know, Bobby in kindergarten is saying something about, you know, something innocent, like, oh, I want to give Sally a flower. I think she's cute. The alpha will say something like, dude, stop being such a girl. And it, it grows from there. Mm. So, you know, typically when we're 12 or 13, most boys will cop to having a best friend and how much they love this best friend. By the time we're 14 as a freshman in high school, best friends tend to go away. We have friends, but we're controlled by two major kind of motivators. One is not to appear gay. One is not to appear female. And we have words and insults to police ourselves. So if you show too much sadness or fear, someone's going to say, stop being such a pussy. Yeah. Don't be such a bitch. Um, And it could be a friend. It could be a guy on a team that you have that you're playing on. It could be a coach. It could be your dad, but somebody, it could be a girlfriend. I've heard, I've had guys you know, like a guy will cry in front of his girlfriend and the girlfriend's like, don't be such a wuss. Yeah. And then if you show too much on the positive side, too much enthusiasm, love, joy, romanticism, don't be so gay. Yeah. And if you're smart and remotely sensitive, you learn really quickly, holy shit, I don't like that feeling. I'm not going to do that again. And so you start over years to shut down two thirds of the emotional spectrum that are available to us. So what are we left with? I would argue we're left with lust. Oh, she looks good, I do her. Stress, look at me, I'm so important, I'm so stressed. Or anger, some degree of anger, annoyance, irritability, frustration, rage, and most of it gets filtered through anger. So most of what we feel as men comes out through the anger lens. So if we feel guilty, anger. If we feel embarrassed, anger. If we feel anxiety, anger. If we feel depressed, anger. Again, some degree of anger. Like depression in men is just known to come out as irritability. So what, what is, so what? So what is, why does that matter? Well, the problem is over time we get disconnected from ourselves. We get disconnected from being in a relationship and we get disconnected from growth. Because the whole anger dynamic is when I'm really pissed at you, it's all your fault in my mind, right? So I'm not listening to anything you have to say to me. I'm just like, man, if Lance would stop that shit, I would be fine. I wouldn't be so angry. Lance, you got to stop doing that shit. So it shuts down conversation. It shuts down introspection. It shuts down growth. So then we get, we get truncated, we get stopped in our relational development. And, you know, the women continue to evolve and grow and learn. 
And, you know, in the U.S., 75% of the divorces right now are initiated by women. And the biggest complaint that I hear is, I can't connect with my man. He's not supportive. He's not communicative. He's not empathetic. He's not understanding. He's pretty much just irritable most of the time. And, you know, I, I've had, you know, I got, I get pushback occasionally from men that are like, well, how come I have to evolve? <laughs> well, it's not just you. It's everybody. Like, if you're not evolving, you're dying. If you're not growing, you're not living. You know, what would you rather be? Would you rather be the, the healthy, roaring river full of life? Or would you rather be the, the pond that's stagnating with scum and moss and mosquitoes on it? Mm. Which one's healthier to you? Yeah. So, you know, part of it, I think, is just understanding that we're socialized in a certain way. And, and let me just say, it's not our fault. It's no man's fault out there that we are the way we are. That's, it's a bigger issue than any individual. It's a cultural systemic issue. And there's no, you know, conspiracy. There's no, you know, group that's saying this is what we need to do. This is just how we've evolved as a species but we need to be aware of it in order to begin to change it. So it's not our fault, but it is our responsibility to find a way to deal with it. And, and it's, it's not that hard. It's just having some curiosity. It's having a willingness to learn some tools. It, part of the, I think the biggest part of it is learning to deal with your, to overcome your own fear in starting, but then also a willingness to be at times embarrassed when you fall down when you fall short, because that's going to happen too. When you're learning, I mean, when you learn to ride a bike, right? You, it wasn't just like that. It, there was a process, there was a struggle. And when you overcame it, when you finally got on that bike and you got it going for the first time, there was tremendous pride. And the feeling was like, Oh my God, this is awesome. And you know, one of the things that I didn't circle back to is, so, you know, I told you about all my struggles, but what I didn't tell you was that my life has been, fucking amazing for the past four or five years. So there was a purpose to all that struggle. And I think the purpose was partly to wake me up, partly to reinforce some of the skills that I've been learning and teaching only like for the purpose of setting me up for the relationship that I've been in for four years, because now I'm in a relationship with uh, a beautiful woman who's a therapist. And I didn't know relationship could be like this. Mm. I mean, for instance, there was, we've been going out like, um, I don't know, three months and I'd come over to her house from work and, you know, sometimes my work is a little bit heavy and so I was, I think I was tired and kind of stressed and a little bit irritable, not a big, you know, like two on a scale of 10, but out of sorts. And at the end of the night I went home and, you know, I, I just texted her and I said, Hey, listen, I'm sorry. I was a little bit irritable tonight. Uh, it has nothing to do with you. It's just work related. And she immediately called me and said, hey, listen, my job is to accept all of you, the good and the bad emotions. Mm, that's so awesome. Don't worry about it. Like, you're fine. And I was just like, uh, it's so refreshing. What the fuck? Like, yeah, no one's ever told me that before, but it's hugely freeing. Yeah. And, you know, to be able to have permission to feel whatever you're feeling as a man yeah. Who gets that? Do you feel like, cause you've had conditioning with your ex-wife, do you feel like you go back into old, like all of a sudden your old mindset, like you feel like you're going to get jumped on? Um, like, good you know, question. Um, yeah, I think there's always the risk of that. And, and, you know, she and I have a pretty remarkable ability to, to be aware of those kind of things where mm -hmm. we can say in the moment, like where I'm like, if she's getting upset, I'm like, okay, this has nothing to do with me. Like this is about her past relationship with her ex. Yeah. Um, it was interesting. She went, um, she went on a month long trip to Europe with her daughters. Um, and part of it was for her daughter's bat mitzvah, which they went to Israel to celebrate. And I felt very excluded um, because she was, this was kind of her, her core family with her ex because that was really important to her to get to that 13 year mark mm -hmm. celebrate as kind of that traditional family. Um, but I had all sorts of issues with it. One that she was with her ex, like she was gone too long. Like she had a health crisis in Paris. Like there was all sorts of stuff. And I found myself getting 
angry at times, irritable. Like I was just struggling with it at two in the morning, right? It wasn't during the day, it was fine. But when my mind would kind of run away with me at night, I was getting annoyed. And so I had to look back and think, is there another trigger that might be, is this bringing something up from the past? And what I realized was, yeah, like I went back to, um, you know, trauma is that the idea, trauma is something that disconnects you from a feeling of safety. So if I use that as the definition, I went back in my past and I was like, oh, wow. Like when I was like four five, six, seven, my parents used to travel a lot and they would leave for oh. two to four weeks. And they would leave us with a babysitter who was like, I don't know, 21. But I did not feel safe at those times. And there was a variety of reasons for that, some more legitimate than others. I mean, some of it was my perception, but some of it was really real. Like I remember the babysitter, I think I was like seven. And the babysitter took me and my older sister, who was a year and a half older, to the movies. And she was like, what do you want to see? And my sister's like, I want to see the house down the lane. Or I think that's what it was, house by the lake or something. It was this rated, rated R like slasher movie. I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that. And we ended up seeing it. And it was about, you know, a biker gang that comes and like kills, you know, six couples at a lake house and then, you know, rapes the women. And then one woman survives barely and goes and gets a revenge on the biker gang. And it was like, I'm seven. Like, I don't want to see that shit. So it, it made me realize that there was a trigger for, you know, like anger and fear when people you love leave for long periods of time, especially to another country. Mm. So that kind of helped and it made a lot more sense. Isn't that interesting? Because that just brings up things in my own mind and I'm sure anyone listening out there, there's, there's always more to it, you know? Like there's always more to like what, what you're feeling now especially if you start to do the inner work and you start to develop, like you wonder, like this came from somewhere, mm -hmm. this, this feeling, this anxiety, this emotion. And then when you start to talk about, yeah, when you're that in those informative ages where if there's some sort of like something like that happens, like watching scary movies is horrible for kids. Now that yeah. I look back, like, and, and, and just like having your parents go away and it totally makes sense on how that could almost be traumatizing and how that can carry on later on. Yeah. You know, it's like when I was a kid, um, I, I try to, I, I look back cause I still don't really like going out into like the ocean or deep water, like that. I don't know. <laughs> it's this unknown territory. Like I was living uh, in Australia and I didn't want to surf because when I was, when I was growing up, um, I was taking swimming lessons and uh, the lifeguard threw me into the deep end. Oh yeah. And I was traumatized. My mom couldn't even get me in the bathtub. Like I was freaking out. So that carried on. Yeah. That's still well, that's like today. I'm like, why don't I want to go surf? But I feel like that. I still have that weird, like I can do it. I can go into the water, but it's, I don't know what it is, but it's still there. Right. Yep. It's like that. Yeah, and some of those memories, they're not even conscious memories. They're, yeah. They're encoded in our body, in our yeah. cells. Like there's a body memory. And, and so I think some of this stuff, it's way below the conscious awareness. And so yeah. to sit and think back of, huh, like what could have disconnected me from a feeling of safety? I think it's just an interesting exercise to figure out how do those episodes that you come up with a hit on, like how is that affecting me now in the present moment? Like I know, like when I first got out of my relationship, my marriage and started dating, I had a couple... I don't know, short relationships, like six months. And I realized that when we'd get into a disagreement, I had a tendency of just kind of um, shutting down, kind of stonewalling. But what I was trying to do internally was stay calm and not get angry, but it came across as being robotic, disconnected, and uncaring. Mm. So I was like, oh, shit, I need to look at that. Like, that's something I need to work on. Um, and, and to be able to do that, I think it helps to have a safe relationship to practice. How are your parents? Were they, how are they like, how did they deal with their, their fighting or their, cause I feel like a lot of that has to do with, I, I have an anger problem too, that I've gotten because I grew up in so much fighting all the time. That was normal to me fighting. If you didn't fight, it was like, well, what's going on here? There's peace around here today. It, it, it never seemed. And, and I feel like I've. 
when you talk about anger is that I have to deal with that too, is like what you're talking about. But did that come from you, from your parents? Did they fight a lot or? They, they didn't fight at all. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Which, you know, we, <laughs> it's a good German family. So we definitely repress our emotions. Yeah. Um, and so there's more, I would say, passive aggressive, um, okay. you know, kind of subtle digs and oh, yeah. yeah, just, you know, if, so in my family, you know, one of the messages is if you lose your temper, then you don't love me in your family. It's probably something like you don't love me unless you're angry or unless you're getting angry at times because anger shows caring. Yeah. It's so messed up, man. <laughs> and, but, I mean, it's, so... it's messed up, but that's a really common belief. Like I remember yeah. when I first heard that or f discovered it, I was like, really? And then I had to think about it. I was like, Oh, well, yeah, I guess I can see how that makes sense. And again, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is emotions are not always rational. So yeah. they don't always make logical sense. They're just emotions. And there was one, um, I picked this up recently. I thought it was brilliant. Just the idea, like if you're parenting or if you're in a relationship, or even if you're managing someone at work, that you don't want to criticize the emotion that someone displays, only focus on the behavior. In other words, like, let's say you're a parent and you got the 15-year-old son and you're like, hey, son, go clean your room. And your son's like, you know, and rolls his eyes, but then goes off to clean the room. A lot of parents that I talk to are like, he shouldn't roll his eyes. Like, that's disrespectful. Like, wait a second. Like, we have emotions and it's healthy to display them. You yeah. know, so... If he's still doing what you're asking, but he's kind of, I don't know, exasperated or disgusted, he's still doing what you're asking. So to give him the room to feel what he's feeling and then go do it is probably the best way to go. And we forget what it was like as a teenager. I mean, who wanted to clean their room, right? I mean, and like, yeah, sure, let's go clean my room. I'd be like, are you okay? Yeah. Are you, why would you want to, you know, like... Totally. And you, we, it's so easy how we forget what it was like yeah. at that age. Right. So I want to just, we're running out of time here, but I, I would like to kind of tap into your podcast a little bit and then kind of where we can find you. Maybe just give us a little bit of a walkthrough about your podcast and, you know, maybe some of the, the things that you work on, some of the highlights and yeah, maybe just give us a little bit of, insight into that, the evolved caveman. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I had this realization back when I was like, I don't know, 28, maybe, that I was an emotional idiot, that I had a PhD in psychology from Cal, and I was still kind of an emotional idiot. Not all the time, but I, I just realized that there was times when my emotions were getting the best of me. And I would do things out of emotion, whether anger or sadness or excitement or boredom or fear, anxiety, whatever it was, that I would look back later and be like, man, why did I do that? Or why did I say that? Or I shouldn't have done that. And it frustrated the hell out of me. So I started writing the book back then in order to teach myself basically how to be more emotionally aware. And so fast forward, you know, now I work with men and I've been seeing, I see a lot of executives that are worth 50, 200, $400 million, like more money than you can spend in a lifetime. And what I realized is that most of these men are highly successful at work. They know what's expected of them. They're valued, admired, and respected at work. But then they go home and they don't want to be home. Their wife's annoyed with them because they can't connect. So the wife's kind of nagging at them. They usually at this point have teenage kids and the teenage kids are disrespectful and out of control or just, you know, not feeling the dad. They're angry at the dad for working so much. And it made me realize like, I need to shift more from that executive coaching and focus more on relationship skills and tools to teach these guys so that they could be better in relationship. And that led to this more recent work in masculinity. But my, my belief is that the goal is success and happiness. Mm. And to do that, you need to be successful and happy at work and at home. Without those four things, you're neither successful nor happy, I would argue. Mm. And so my goal has been to kind of teach men, to help men evolve, to 
you know, wherever that is, it could be physical, like some people need to get back in shape. Some people need work on managerial skills. Some people need work on themselves. Some people need work on getting more emotionally aware. Some it's communication, some it's sex, some it's dating, but it's how do we reach our potential as men, given that we've all come up through this man box culture. So that's kind of the foundation of the jumping off point. And then how do we evolve or grow beyond that? So that, that's the idea. And so it focuses on a variety of things from functional medicine to nutrition to communication skills to relationships to dating. Um, but I try and come at it from a mostly scientific framework because that's my, my background from Cal. I, I've always kind of needed data and research to back up what I'm teaching. Now, the longer I live, the more it's like, well, there are these practices from the East that have been around for 3,000 years. You know, maybe they've got some legs. Also, because a lot of practices from Buddhism have been brought over and tested in the lab in the last 50 years, and not one of them has been shown to be less than effective. Like they're all highly, highly effective. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I'm a little bit more open-minded, but that's kind of my my bent. Well, you're the evolved caveman, man. We're evolving. That's, that's... yeah. Well, I, the evolving caveman. I really evolving. I, like, I yeah, like the evolving. Off. It, oh, know, I, I, I'm finished. It's that. That's what we're shooting for. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Where can everybody find you? Where's the best place to check you out? Um, you can check it on the web at theevolvedcaveman.com. Instagram, the evolved caveman. Uh, it's on Apple, iTunes, and Spotify, and Google Play, and Stitcher, and all that at the evolved caveman. Awesome. What about um? What about any of your other work, your book, or any of that stuff? Um, those are in the shop on the site. It's either okay. Guide to Self or The Evolved Caveman. We also have, okay. uh, my girlfriend and I are putting on a couples retreat in Costa Rica in September of 2020, which will be awesome. Um, and then we're looking at setting up a men's retreat, and we're also doing some couples workshops here locally in uh, Northern California. Is that already up on your website that we can link up to this? Yeah, I think that's actually on her site at joryrose.com. Okay. Um, I'll um there should be a, a link from my site to that site. We'll get we'll get all that lined up. I want to make sure that people can find you and check your different things out. That's why I just try to make it clear for everybody. So, um awesome. Well, I I really appreciate you coming and hanging out with us. I just have one one more question. I hope you're okay sure. for time. Yeah, um, I'm good. So, out of everything that we've talked about, I know I always narrow it down to one thing. What is one lesson? that adversity has taught you? Um, you know, my last weekend, my daughter scratched her cornea. Um, and we were in the ER Friday night and she had a, a soccer tournament Saturday and Sunday, four games. So I, I asked the doctor, you know, what about soccer, you know, tomorrow morning? And he's like, well, she probably can't play tomorrow. She should be good by Sunday. All right, we go home, I put her to bed and she wakes up in the morning. She can't even open her eye in her dark, bedroom because the light sensitivity is so severe. So I said, okay, let's, we'll patch you up. We'll, let's put your uniform on just in case, but we'll go support the team. So we go to the game, the adrenaline starts going and she's like, dad, I want to try and play. All right. Like talk to your, let's talk to the coach and let him know. So she goes in, she went in sparingly, but she got an assist with one eye, which was pretty badass. And then she ended up, you know, later, on Sunday, scored the game tying goal to put them in the championship game. So overall, she was like on cloud nine. She was really proud of herself. And I said, yeah, so, you know, just keep in mind that life is about stories and good or bad, painful or pride. Everything makes a good story after the fact, because you can use your, your pain and your suffering to teach people, but realize that your stories are always made better by the adversity that you have to overcome to get there. So in other words, without that corneal scratch, that story becomes like, oh, that was a good tournament. With the corneal scratch, she's just overcome a big challenge. Now it's badass. Now it's like, wow, that was amazing. So, you know, I, one of the things you do in positive psychology is you do this exercise called um, best possible you. So when you're introducing a group, it's tell me a story of you at your very best. And I remember I did this, I was teaching a, a class of um, like psychologists and therapists. 
And I was asking them to do this. And some people, like the people, interestingly, who had gotten straight A's, went to Stanford, now we're working in Stanford Oncology, were like, I know I'm supposed to say something, but I'm not really sure. Like, so she was stumped, but everyone else would start their story at a low and them at their very best was them overcoming that adversity when they were up at the top. So there's a story arc. Mm. So understand that adversity is temporary, but it's also, once you overcome it, it instills you with great pride. It's a challenge, nothing more. Mm. Very well said. You're great at storytelling too. Like, you know, I, I, you know, telling the whole, like the picture of it. And it's like, you can like imagine being there and stuff. You're very good at that, man. Thanks. I've practiced. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, you, you appreciate people that are good storytellers. You know, you always have that uncle or somebody that's like, you know, you could just, <laughs> it's awesome, man. Thank you very much for that. Um, that was, got so much gold from that, that, this conversation. And I really appreciate you coming and hanging out with us. Hey, Lance, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, man. I'll uh, make sure everybody can come check you out and have everything find you and the Evolve Caveman. You guys make sure you check out Dr. John. I don't even want to pronounce Shinner, Shinnerer. Dr. John Shinnerer. All yeah. right, there we got it. You guys make sure to check him out. Um, he's doing some amazing things and he's walk to walk so that he can talk the talk. So it's, uh, again, this was great. Have an amazing day, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, share this with a friend, check out Dr. John, check out his podcast. Make sure you go and subscribe, leave a review on his as well. Have a chat or uh, leave a comment, whatever, go listen to it and uh, get some value. He's, um, he's got a lot to offer and he can help you if you need it. So love you guys. Have an amazing day. We'll catch you next time. You just finished another class at the University of Adversity. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and tune in again next time for more life lessons with Lance ECOs.